Extraordinary Districts, Season 5, Where Are All Those Dollars Going? Episode 2, Addressing Learning Needs. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. We believe all children deserve a great education, and we work to ensure they get it. This is Episode 2 of the fifth season of Extraordinary Districts. We're looking at how schools and districts are using the massive infusion of federal money that went to help them cope with the effects of COVID. The money was sent from the federal government in three waves under the Elementary and Secondary School Emergency Relief, or ESSER. In total, it sent $190 billion to states, which kept some and sent the rest to school districts. The feds didn't put a lot of restrictions on how schools use the money, which means there's a lot of leeway depending on the needs of the local schools and districts. In episode one, we heard about a future ed analysis. It found that schools, districts, and states are using the money in a lot of different ways, making school buildings safe, tutoring, hiring more staff, buying new curricula, and paying for training, all kinds of ways. But it's still hard to understand how the money is being used until you actually talk with educators. So that's what we're doing. And in the process, I hope you will hear how expert educators are thinking about how to improve schools for the future. We did a lot of of researching, reading, and thinking before we created our plan. That's Tricia McManus. Superintendent of Winston-Salem, Forsyth County District in North Carolina, which has about 50,000 students. I've known Dr. McManus since she was an assistant superintendent in Hillsborough County, Florida, where she was in charge of improving the lowest performing 50 schools in the district. And under her leadership, almost all of them did improve. She arrived in Winston-Salem, Forsyth County as an assistant superintendent with a mandate to improve the schools and she became superintendent during the pandemic. After she held a series of eight community meetings, the Winston-Salem Forsyth County School Board put in place a plan to spend the ESSER money. Just one part of the plan was providing Google Chromebooks for every one of their students. That, plus hotspots and classroom charging cards, cost almost $25 million, which will be spent over three years. And COVID prevention, such as building repairs to HVAC systems, cleaning, masks, and so forth, that's another $48 million over three years. But that's not all. We're we're dealing with impact of the pandemic from learning to mental health. And so what can we do to put a, to like really allocate funds now to do some work that maybe we couldn't have done before and that is needed now even more than ever? but then also to think about sustainability. So we didn't want to like pay for a bunch of people that we then can't continue. She's referring to the fact that all the money has to be spent by 2024. And if the district hires people today with ESSER money, they have to think about whether they will have to lay them off after three years. We've added school nurses with that. And that's going to be something that when I mention about how do we sustain that after the three years, we're going to need to figure that out because nurses are, we don't have enough nurses currently. 
Many school districts have cut school nurses from their budgets over the last couple of decades, which means that COVID left schools largely unprepared to deal with such issues as testing and quarantine procedures. School secretaries, teacher aides, and administrators became infectious disease contact tracers during COVID, and they administered thousands of COVID tests. Hiring school nurses means having trained medical personnel in schools where they're needed. I said that there are a few restrictions on how educators can use the federal money, but one restriction is that for the third big wave of funds, districts have to use at least 20% of the money to directly address any academic losses students may have experienced during the pandemic. For learning loss, we have a lot of extended learning opportunities after school, during the day with tutors and after school. With hiring tutors, we, we've put a lot of money in for after-school programs, extending the school year for some of our most struggling schools. We have our summer programming, which is all paid out of this bucket. This is a $40 million bucket. It's a lot of, of money there. I don't want our kids to hurt for anything. Field trips, hands-on, resources in our schools. Like We should have nobody saying, I can't do this because there's no money. So I keep telling people we've got 215 million for the next three years. We have got to make up a lot of ground with that money. Mental health is a big one. And we've estimated about 12 million of our budget in mental health. And that is literally increasing mental health staff at schools. With that, we're doing, we've done mental health um, coaches and social emotional learning coaches and added social workers and counselors. We've added some of those this year, which again, that's going to be a hard one to sustain, but it's one thing to, to, to bring in programs. The people, when you talk to school leaders about what they need, they need more people that can provide this actual service to our students. And so, I mean, we do have PD in there around youth mental health, um, youth mental health aid, school crisis prevention training, trauma and resiliency training. We have all that built in, which is paying for staff training. Um, we are getting a universal SEL curriculum that's happening in there. S-E-L stands for social-emotional learning. Educators use it as a shorthand for talking about how they are responding to the way students are feeling and acting. And publishers have developed specific curricula to help teachers manage those discussions with students. Children, like all of us, have felt the strain of living through a pandemic, and some of them have had a hard time adjusting to being back in school buildings after a period of remote learning. Dr. McManus echoed many other educators in saying that schools have seen more acting out. We we hired a full-time person who's helping us get mentoring programs up and running in all of our schools, especially for some of our youth that have been underserved and are maybe like we're seeing more around um, in-school fighting and violence since we left last year. And so these are, he's helping schools design on-site mentoring programs. We put a million dollars towards uh, a gang violence, a group that's actually in our schools and in the community. They are a grassroots group, like violence interrupters that we have contracted with to be in our schools and then in the community. So in schools, in community, back and forth, and they're targeting students that are either known to be in gangs or, or could potentially get to that point. I thought this was a really interesting use of money. If you haven't heard of violence interrupters, they are community members, some of whom are former gang members, who work in communities to defuse volatile situations. 
Chicago and Baltimore were early sites for violence interrupter programs, and early research found that violence interrupters helped reduce gun violence. This is the first time I've heard of violence interrupters being brought into schools, and it made sense to me as something to try. But as I have observed many times, what seems like a good idea in theory may not work out in practice. In general, the field of education is really good at coming up with stuff that sounds like it might be a good idea. It is less good about figuring out whether it really was a good idea. Which is why I was really excited to hear that Winston-Salem is using its ESSER money to do something else that I consider important. One thing we did pay for in ESSER was a evaluator. So we are actually wanting to evaluate all of the core initiatives that we put in. By having someone specifically evaluating whether the programs it puts in do what they're supposed to do and have the effect they are supposed to have, Winston-Salem, Forsyth County, is holding itself to account. With these dollars comes great responsibility to make sure that what we're trying to do is not just like random. Like there are people that were giving me ideas that were way out of the box. And what I said is as much as possible, there's so much educational research out there, as much as possible, if we can do things that are proven and do them well, that's going to be better for our kids than, oh, let me go do some random thing that sounds great, pie in the sky, but we don't even know if that would work. And again, even with my mentoring with the community group, we know mentoring works. We just don't know, like, this is the first time I'll try. Let's do this with grassroots violence interrupters who both in school, home, and they're go between the both, like it's a new model. But mentoring and kids having a trusted adult is not a new model. With this opportunity comes great responsibility to do things as much as possible that are that show have some research base behind them and also try some things that are, you know, that are innovative, but to to use the money wisely. Cause we're not gonna, I don't believe we'll ever have this opportunity again. I mean, this is a lot of money. We've got to be able to show some results with this money. If we have $215 million and at the end of three years, our achievement gaps are not closed any better. Our achievement is still, you know, 51% of third graders reading on grade level. Then why would anybody go, yeah, it's more money. That's what they need. They're not going to say that. And so I'm, I'm, my biggest thing with all this is that we are able to show really great results, even amidst the challenges that we're facing right now. Dr. McManus is echoing a common theme among those I spoke with for this podcast. Educators know that ESSER money is a huge opportunity to demonstrate that with sufficient resources, children will learn better. They're also deeply cognizant that the last couple of decades have produced research that can help guide good decisions, and they're working to ensure that the money is not wasted. Even before COVID, Winston-Salem, Forsyth County had begun to revamp its curriculum. But the COVID funds have allowed them to ramp up the purchases and make sure they have all the components and the training. Dr. McManus is confident that will make a difference. When we talk about guaranteed and viable curriculum, if that's missing, you're not going to make up learning loss. I mean, if it, whatever, you're, you, you, that should be a foundational piece that is already addressed. And so the fact that our districts are using these funds to actually get their materials updated is going to pay off dividends. We're one of them. 
Because if for 10 years we've had teachers from classroom to classroom finding resources online and finding things online, you start to run the risk of, is that on grade level? Is that really addressing the standards, the state standards? Is it going to be rigorous enough? And so now we're giving them the materials to use in their classrooms. And that we already expect a a, a big dividend to be paid based on you've got on grade level resources now that are culturally relevant, that are up to date. So I'm hoping, you know, not hoping, but I I already know that that's going to make a difference. Dr. McManus is talking about an issue that has plagued many school districts. They don't always have what she referred to as a guaranteed viable curriculum, a term I believe was coined by researcher Robert Marzano. Without a guaranteed viable curriculum, teachers are left searching on the internet for good lesson ideas. Dr. McManus is banking on the idea that improving the curriculum will help her students improve their learning. And I heard the same thing from folks in Richmond City, Virginia. Richmond has about 22,000 students. About two-thirds of the students are African-American, and most of the students come from lower-income households. Richmond is considered a very low-performing district, both within Virginia and nationally. Its achievement data is pretty dismal, which is why its current superintendent, Jason Cameras, and his team have focused very specifically on reading instruction. I talked with Tracy Epps, Chief Academic Officer for Richmond Public Schools, and Tyra Harrison, Executive Director of Teaching and Learning, about how the federal ESSER money is proving helpful on that score. By the way, both of them had just come back from being sick with COVID. And as Ms. Harrison said, Don't let anybody fool you that you can hop up and run. Like, Tracy just came back. And she said yesterday she had to go home and just get in bed. And she slept all night. I was like, yes, it takes a while to get your energy back. I'm not really talking about COVID itself in this podcast, but it's important to keep in mind that the background for all of this is a worldwide pandemic. As of this recording, it has sickened almost 80 million and killed almost 1 million Americans. Although people who have been vaccinated and boosted, like Tracy Epps and Tyra Harrison, are for the most part protected against death and serious disease, that doesn't mean they can't get pretty sick. And in many of the districts I'm talking about, students have lost parents or grandparents to the disease, teachers have gotten sick, students have gotten sick. January, when everyone came back from winter break, was a particularly bad time. So just keep in mind that illness and sadness is the backdrop for all these conversations. In any case, Richmond City used a lot of its ESSER money for the same kinds of things we've already heard about. Masks, sanitizer, cleaning, ventilation systems, school repair, summer school tutoring, school safety and mental health and so forth. But it's also putting a lot of money into reading instruction. And I wanted to hear more. We already had a reading crisis, but COVID magnified our reading crisis. The thing is that more than a decade ago, Richmond was improving, at least in terms of reading proficiency. Its improvement was widely recognized and lauded, but the superintendent who led the improvement left, and it has since fallen back. Adopting a new curriculum was uh, in our game plan from day one when we developed our strategic plan with the community when Jason uh, took on superintendency. We adopted it, actually, that was already underway. So pre-COVID, 
we were in the adoption process. And then when we realized we were going to, and we had adopted that spring of 20 or 19, spring of 19, we had already adopted. And the debate then became, are we going to implement in 2020 in a virtual year? We did. This is our first year in person, but to adopt a new curriculum was not a COVID choice. That was a, we got to improve academic outcomes for our district choice. And as you know, for any school improvement effort, foundational is a high quality curriculum. You can hear she's using the same basic research that Trisha McManus talked about. We had a balanced literacy curriculum where um, the district had spent a lot of money, but also did not adopt all the components. And of course, did not really have a strong implementation plan. And it was one of the things we heard over and over and over again from teachers and principals was this curriculum is not meeting our needs. So much to the point, I mean, the data was clear. I mean, I looked at it and was like, this does not reflect what we've learned over the last five years in the ed space. And certainly not around the highest, highest quality curriculum. Um, But I'll give you an example. The one component they didn't adopt in K-2 was the phonics portion. So there was no requirement to teach phonics in a school district that was under a state MOU with like significant, you know, historical failure of reading rates among children of color. It it was just mind blowing. And so we didn't even wait. We didn't wait for our new curriculum to implement phonics. I guess in my first school year here, we said, okay, we can't go a year without phonics. And I know I can't bring in a curriculum tomorrow. So we just purchased the phonics portions of the curriculum we had. And I said, let's get, and I, I purchased a supplement of um, that allowed us to do close reading, like a, a close reading supplement. And we reworked the, you know, reading block to use what we had to at least try to get us heading towards the direction of, um, you know, research-based practices for reading. So I could go down the whole like literacy plan, but for COVID, it happened pre-COVID. We are now using COVID funds to supplement and ramp up books for kids, like lots and lots of reading. Um, so our, our literacy plan just kind of went on steroids, if you will, with our COVID money because we had to respond with that level of energy, you know, ramping up intervention, really ramping up our investment and in small group instruction and the ability to staff that during the day, ramping up our training of teachers with things like be it letters, or um, the Center on Research and Education, their like core phonics program. Um, We launched a literacy institute. So we use the COVID money to, I think, accelerate people's expertise and knowledge base in reading recovery or reading, helping students struggling in reading, and then also ramping up how much dosage we could give to kids. And then, of course, additional professional development and support She mentioned letters training. This is specific training for educators developed by reading researcher Louisa Motes that focuses on helping teachers understand how and why to teach students to recognize the 43 sounds of the English language and how to map them onto the 26 letters of the alphabet. This is otherwise known as phonemic awareness and phonics, which helps children decode words. It isn't the only important part of reading instruction, but we know from a huge amount of research that it is important, and it's often been neglected. You heard Tracy Epps say that although Richmond had a curriculum that included phonics, the city hadn't purchased that part of the program, which meant teachers were on their own. And that wasn't all. We had, bless them, college kids tutoring our most struggling readers without any guidance, pulling them out of reading instruction, by the way pulling them away from a certified teacher to like tutor. And now we have like dedicated, we might, we now have tutors that are trained 
in a strategy. So the students who need the most work with the most supremely skilled teachers, even if they are working with a tutor or an instructional assistant or even a teacher who may or may not have been taught how to help a struggling reader, by the way, they have a, a roadmap that's based in evidence that they can follow. And this is where the training that I mentioned earlier comes in. Whether it's for curriculum or intervention programs, I don't want teachers to blindly follow a curriculum, right? And this is the debate we constantly have, right? Now, or the, the tension we're constantly dealing with, which is, yes, we want you to follow what we know works and, and what's there for you, mm-hmm. but we want you to have the background knowledge. We want, I want our curriculum to be educative, not the training only on how to do something, but the why it works behind it to me feels very, very important. I don't think we've won all the hearts and minds yet around that in terms of teachers, because we still have a lot of autonomy talk and things like that. But I think we're getting closer. So Richmond City has put in place a new reading curriculum. By the way, it's Expeditionary Learning, or EL. Richmond's bought all the components to the curriculum. It's providing a lot of professional development for teachers and teacher aides in the curriculum. And it's also buying a lot of books for classroom libraries and for students to have at home. And it has a system for intervening with struggling students. Instead of just being helped by well-meaning but untrained college students, the students struggling the most are being helped by the teachers who are the most skilled. This system is often called Response to Intervention, or RTI doubling down on our RTI framework and our student support strategy alongside our curriculum work, I hope going to be the winning strategy. This is a very focused strategy, and we should be able to see some improvements in reading achievement in Richmond. We saw it years ago, so we know it's possible. But there's one other very important piece to the transformation that Richmond City is trying to have with its reading instruction, which Tyra Harrison mentioned. We put a big investment in our administrators. Like I, to see our uh, principals so excited about the science of reading training, to see them actually in the PDs with, uh, alongside our teachers as we were doing the curriculum adoption. So, you know, have, making the space and being thoughtful about not just buying something, but thinking about what is implementation, support, and execution look like, uh, which we're still very much in the middle of that. The reason I wanted to highlight this issue is that. Too often, districts discount the importance of principals needing to fully understand and be part of curricular changes. And Ms. Harrison and I have talked quite a bit in the past about how important school leaders are to school improvement. By the way, if you're interested in this issue, I would point you to Episode 4 and Season 1 of Extraordinary Districts that talked about this question at length. Or just hang on and listen to our next episode, where we will hear how one state is using COVID money to ensure the next generation of principals will be ready to lead improvement. But we're going to wrap this episode up now. We heard thoughtful educators talk about how the federal COVID money is being used not only to address immediate needs of reopening schools, but to spur improvement efforts that have long been needed. You've also heard educators who are deeply aware of the responsibility to show that they have learned from the last couple of decades of research and that they can better help their students to learn. And you have heard educators who are holding themselves responsible for results. 
We'll keep talking with thoughtful and expert educators, and you'll hear about other ways they're using the federal investment in schools to improve opportunities for their students. For now, I want to thank everyone at the Education Trust who has helped support these podcasts and the folks at Tonal Park who produced them. Thanks to Mike Patillo for the original music score and for recording and editing. This is Karen Chenoweth. See you next time. Thank you.